All right, good morning, y'all. My name is Steve. Uh, I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us as we continue our study through the book of Romans. If you didn't grab a, uh, a study book yet, I really would encourage you to do so. Uh, there in the lobby, just grab one, okay? Uh, we broke the book into five sections, and in each section, we will produce a study book uh, to help you engage the text, to place, to place, take notes during the sermon, questions to help you uh, process what you're learning with others, a place for devotional prayer. Um, grab it, study it. My, my, my hope for you is that at the end of this study, you'll You'll have a personal record of your own journey through the book of Romans, that, that you'll have a record of, of what God has shown you and, and of what you have learned, okay? So grab one. Um, as mentioned, today's sermon is PG-13. You've just heard it read. I think you uh, know where we're going. Um, and so uh, if you do happen to have any kids that you don't want to have these conversations with, we do have a space set up downstairs for them. Uh, if you would rather go sit down there um, than be up here, that that probably would be okay too, um, but I would encourage you to stick around, okay? Uh, here's the thing, um, we're going to be talking about homosexuality um, because it's in the text, and, uh, and I know this is a complex, it is a, it is a, a broad topic. Uh, if you have comments, if you have questions, if you have thoughts that you want to share, if there are things that you're wondering that I don't address in the sermon, which I guarantee will happen, um, feel free to use our... our um, our email and, and text number, okay? You can just shoot those questions in, and, uh, and I will either respond to you personally, which, which I've done quite a bit so far, uh, or we'll make sure that your questions get addressed in a broader context. We are planning on having a forum about this topic. I simply cannot uh, address all the information this morning, right? My job this morning is to teach the text. And, and, and I'm telling you, man, it is, it is a, there, are, there are important questions there are important uh, objections. There are, I'm not going to be able to get to them all. I just can't, okay? Literally, I felt like Edward Scissorhands on this sermon. Um, if you guys know that reference, I know it's like a, a 90s movie, but just going to town with scissors on my hands, just chopping this thing up um, because there, even, even when I condensed it down, there was way too much information for a single sermon. Um, so as a result, I know there will be unanswered questions. I know there will be concerns that I don't address, and I'm going to invite you into a conversation about those things. Feel free to connect with us there, and, and know that we are going to have a, a forum about this, and you will be invited into a place where uh, we're going to bring somebody in, um, and uh, they're going to be leading us in a study and in a conversation about how this is playing out, not just in Scripture, but culturally today, okay? All right, today... We are entering into one of the most notorious sections of this letter uh, because it does talk about homosexuality. It is one of the most hotly debated issues um, in our Christian culture today. Uh, I've been studying this text, as I've guys, I told you guys before, I've been studying this book for, for 30 years. Um, I've been studying this specific text pretty intensely really for the last 10 years, uh, as this has become really a, a, a hot-button topic in our culture and a point of debate, uh, reading it, rereading it, studying it. I've been reading books and reading blogs from, from people that I agreed with and people I dis disagreed with, people that, that were friendly to my thoughts and, and some people that were hostile to my thoughts. I've been having a lot of conversations. Um, SSA, same-sex attraction, um, gay impulses, that's not my, that's not my experience. And so while I've 
been trying to study the text, I've also been trying to study the human experience and understand more because there are things I just don't know unless people who, who have had this struggle, people who, who have had these experiences reveal them to me. And I don't, I don't want to be that guy who just pridefully assumes I know everything I need to know because I've got a Bible and I've never talked to a gay person, right? So, so I've been sitting down with friends and, and I've been listening and asking questions. And one of the things that shocked me when I planted this church, honestly, was the number of times I had the honor of being the person sitting down and, and having the person confess to me for the first time, this is my experience, this is who I am, what does this mean? Um, that kind of shocked me, the number of conversations that I've had. And in every single one of them, my first response is always the same, thank you for trusting me enough to open this conversation with me. Thank you. We may not end up disagreeing, but you need to know I love you and I care for you and I'm for you. And, and in some of those conversations, we ended up moving in the same direction. In some of those conversations, we didn't. But I trust that in every single one of them, I was able to honor the person I was speaking with and that, they, that, that no matter how we ended up, in the process, we ended up friends, that we ended up with a mutual respect and love for one another. And that's my, my goal. I want to be faithful to this text. That's my obligation. I have to teach the Word of God, and I am under obligation to do it accurately and faithfully. I will be held accountable for every word I speak. I also want to be faithful to you, and I know that you come in this morning unique, right? Every person coming in comes in from different contexts, with different personal experiences, having different convictions and, and different thoughts and, and, and experiences. And, I'm, and, and here's the thing, I'm very aware that the church has handled um, this topic incredibly poorly. And in this sermon, I'm actually stepping into one of the critical texts that has been abused and has actually been used to abuse people. I grew up in the 80s, um, not exclusively, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, 80s were my decade, and, and, um, and I remember when the AIDS crisis hit. I remember how confusing it was and how, how baffling and, and how it was this new, you know, I mean, like it was this thing you never heard of, and then suddenly it is all you ever hear about. And I remember um, the talking heads, the talking religious heads, uh, the televangelists who were on TV getting on there and talking about how it was all the gays, that it was their fault and this was God's judgment. Um, I remember church leaders using the verses I'm going to preach today to shame, condemn, and abuse a population of people that honestly desperately needed to be comforted because they were afraid. And they were suffering. They didn't need to be shamed. They needed to be loved. So some of you are rightfully nervous coming in today. Some of you have had that moment, that moment that I've heard so many of my friends tell me about, where you realize you're different, that, that maybe I'm not like my friends. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm gay. Some of you have had that that realization, and then all the questions that flood in after that. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my friends? What does that mean for my faith? What does that mean for my sexuality? What does that mean for my future? Some of you, it wasn't you who had that moment. For some of you, it was your child. And you've had uh, the unique experience of walking through that with your, with your child. For some of you, it was your, your, your parent 
or a very close friend. And you love them, and you don't want to hear some preacher bashing on them. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting me to open up this text and and walk through this. I may not say the things you're hoping to hear, but I hope that what I say will be said in love and that you'll hear it with the grace that every single one of us needs to hear from God. Today, I simply cannot say everything that could be said. I definitely will not be able to say everything I want to say. Um, My primary obligation is to teach this text. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to focus on the text, and then we'll be moving that conversation into other venues to talk about all the implications, specifically the forum, but also uh, feel free to email or text, or or, um, if you want to have personal conversations, let me know. There is a paper available at our connection point that the elders put together as a statement of our church's position. It's a very brief summary statement, but it also has a resource list that may be helpful to you as you continue to dig in and study, Uh, but that's available at connection point. So let's just go ahead and take a look at our text, okay? Let's dig in. We're going to start with verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up. Now, we talked about this last week, right? Because we're really jumping into the middle of Paul's thought. Last week set up this week's conversation. So I want to just review a little bit. Who is them? Right? God gave them up. Well, who are they? Right? We need to define. and, And what is he giving them up? Two, right? Well, we we took a look. Last week, Paul has in view our first parents and all of their kids, right? Genesis 1 through 3 is is clearly the backdrop to this chapter. Paul alludes to it a number of times, directly references it. Genesis 1 through 3 is the backdrop to to what he's describing. And, and, And so the they here is best understood as all humanity, right? And they... All of humanity, our first parents and all of their children, exchanged the truth of God, according to verse 25, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. All of humanity worships and serves the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Hmm. Created. Here's the thing, in Genesis 1 through 3, what we see is that we were created in the image of God, unique in all of creation created to be the stewards over all creation as those who have a unique imprint of God Himself, right? We, we were created in the very image of God and designed to live in humble dependence on God. We, we were designed to have all of our deepest needs met in our relationship with God, walking in the joy of His presence, in, in the abundance of His pleasure, uh, in the significance of the mission that He gave our lives, bearing the image of God as vice regents into all of creation, doing what we were created to do, being what we were created to be. But our first parents and all of us have chosen instead of bearing the image of God, trying to be like God. Instead of being humbly dependent on God, we want to be independent from God. And instead of being created in the image of God, we want to be equal to God. We want to be little gods. 
We want to define the boundaries of our own glory. We want to establish the mission of our own lives. We, we want to pursue our own pleasures on our own terms. We want to live life in a way that we define. We exchange the glory of God for the image of man. So who did this? Adam and Eve and all of their kids, which is all of us, all of humanity, right? So God gave them, us, over. What did he give us over to? Verse 24 tells us that God gave them over to the lusts of their heart. God gave them over to their disordered desires. Disordered desires are all the appetites that we had in God's presence that can no longer be fed there. Our disordered desires are our deep hungers. And, and, and I think there is a, a helpful classification of four things that I think most things fall under. Deep hungers for significance. That's why we fight to be respected. That's why we fight to be known. That's why we fight to, to have real meaning. That's why we fight to have a corner office, right? We, we have deep needs for significance. We have deep needs for security. We deeply crave safety. Um, we deeply, the reality is at the root of it, we deeply crave immortality. We don't want to, we don't want, we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be exposed. We, we don't want to be, we crave security. We crave pleasure. And at the heart of that, honestly, is we crave the refreshment that comes from having our life rejuvenated. Right? Pleasure is, is by itself, pleasure by itself is, is, it can almost become boring. We pursue pleasure for the purpose of having it recharge our battery, of having it re, re, refill our lives with, with the experience of joy. And we also pursue approval. We deeply crave being loved. We want to know that we are seen and that we are, and that we are valued and that we are loved, we crave, we crave significance, security, um, pleasure, and approval. Deep, deep hungers that drive everything we do. This is the essence of idolatry. These deep hungers were meant to be satisfied in the presence of God. We are now cut off from God because of our sin. Those appetites didn't go away, so those hungers drive us to find our fulfillment in things that aren't God. We turn to things that aren't God and ask those things to do for us what only God can do to be for us what only God can be. We, we turn to our jobs and we say to our jobs, you need to give me eternal significance and value. We turn to our promotions and our fame. We turn to, to people's envy. We, we, we turn to, to our temporary pleasures and we say to those things, you will refresh my soul. We, we turn to our relationships and we say, you will make me feel eternally known and loved. And it is because we are turning to things that aren't God and asking them to do for us what only God can do and to be for us what only God can be that we live in perpetual disappointment and frustration because our disordered desires continue to drive us to what is not God and we ask those things to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. What's the result? Paul tells us in verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to their disordered desires, to impurity, and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
the result, when we seek to, to satisfy our hungers for the presence of God in things that aren't God, the fruit is impurity. It doesn't give us a pure fruit. It doesn't give us what we're genuinely pursuing. It is, it is, it is impure. It leads to the dishonoring of our bodies among each other, right? This, this is already hinting at, at sexual desires specifically. There are a few desires as deeply rooted in our identity or expressed as powerfully in our behavior as our sexual desires. You know why? It's because sex isn't about sex. Sex isn't about sex, right? Sex is about meeting deeper needs. People turn to sex to try to fulfill these deeper hungers. And there are a few things that make greater promises than sex. We turn to sex and we say to sex, you will meet my deep need for pleasure, for rest, for renewal, for refreshment. We turn to sex and we say, you will meet my deep need for significance. It makes me feel important. It makes me feel valuable. It makes me feel powerful. We will turn to sex and say, you will meet my deep need for security. I will be safe because I am, I am in this experience. We turn to sex to meet our deep need for approval. Make me feel loved. Make me feel seen. Make me feel valued. It is in the pursuit of feeding these appetites that we look to sex to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be, and we dishonor our bodies. Because our bodies were created with a purpose. Genesis 1 through 3, we were created in the image of God and given the good gifts from God, including sex, in order to image God and to experience God and to, to, to um, experience all the good things He's given us, not only in Himself, but the gifts that emanate from who He is. And we've taken those gifts and tried to separate them from the giver. We were created with a purpose, and when we use our bodies in ways that um, don't align with that purpose... We dishonor our bodies. So in the next two verses, Paul moves from this general description of sexual sin to a specific example of how this exchanging has resulted in disordered desires that lead to um, frustrated and fruitless results, right? Take a look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Um, I want you to notice that that Paul is saying almost the exact same thing we just looked at in verse 24. And he's going to say it again in verse 28. There's a repetition of a critical idea because this critical idea is at the heart of this chapter. For this reason, because we have exchanged the glory of God for the image of man, and we, have res- we as a result have disordered desires, God gives us over to those desires, right? It's one of the key ideas. Verse 26, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. All right, when you see for, you got to ask what the for is for. What is Paul saying here? What does the for mean? The for means, for example, right? So God gives us over to disordered passions. For example, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Their women exchanged natural relations. 
Originally, in the, in the actual, in the Greek, it says they give up the normal use. Paul's using really mechanical language. Um, that, that there is normal use, a sexual use of, of male and female bodies. And, and that those male and female bodies complement one another in the mechanical usage necessary for sex. Um, their women exchanged the natural use of, of their bodies. Why? To use them for purposes contrary to nature. Right? For their women exchanged the natural relations, their use for that, for those that are contrary to nature. What he means by that is, is they're exchanging the designed use of their bodies for um, an experience of sex that God didn't design. It wasn't part of the natural design of humanity. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the intended purpose of his design. It's contrary to the structure God created in nature for sexual relations. Right? When we look at, at pre-fall humanity, when we look at Genesis 1 through 3, what we see is that God created Adam and Eve, gendered beings. Right? The, 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 he created man, and, and out of man he created woman, um, and they are complementary. Right? They are of the same material from the same source, but uniquely different. And both of those things are important. They are uniquely same, but complementary in their sameness and in their difference, right? And, and that is necessary for the fulfillment of God's design, right? Uh, it's necessary not just for reproduction, but, but for the pursuit of the gift of oneness that we see in Genesis chapter 2, where, where God says to them, um, a man shall leave his father and his mother and, and shall cleave or hold or have covenant relationship with his wife and the two shall become one, right? That, that oneness requires a complementary difference in order for it to fulfill the design intended to it, right? Um, it, it's not just about reproduction, it's about this bigger truth, right, of God's relationship with us. And I can only touch on this this morning. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we are told that the sexual union of a husband and a wife has a profound implication, cosmic implication about God's relationship with us. We are described as the church as being the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband. We are the bride. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was called the husband of Israel. Right? God from the, in, from the beginning intended for this complementary sameness and difference to reflect not just personal relations, but a cosmic reality. When we look at Christ, we are of the same material. God became man, right? But we are uniquely different. And it is that unique difference that allows for the, the unique oneness that we are invited into. So, they're, for example, their women exchange the natural use of men for those that are contrary to nature, the use of women. Verse 27, he goes on, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And the men likewise. What he's saying is, is by way of further illustration, right? Here's the example, the women uh, gave up the natural use of men. By further illustration, the men give up the natural use 
of, of women and instead pursue sexual unity with other men, right? I'm not talking about, and I want to be clear here, and this is, there are so many objections that I would like to touch on and dig on, but this is one that seems to come up a lot. Uh, it's very, it's common in, in a, the blogosphere especially um, for, for people to say Romans 1 isn't even about homosexuality, it's about pederasty. Uh, pederasty is a word that means man, boy, love. Uh, pedo means boy, uh, asty means man. Um, and, and it was common, in, not common, it existed in Roman culture where men would have comfort boys. And, and I'm not saying Paul's not including that in his description, but he's clearly not focusing on that. Uh, you know, for those who hold that argument, I think it's ironic because the word pederasty is a Greek word that actually existed in the time of Paul. If he wanted to talk about it, he could have used the word. Instead, he talks about men having relationships with men, right? He's being pretty clear. Not only that, he references women, which would have made absolutely no sense in reference to pederasty because there was no corresponding practice among women. He is talking about uh, women having sex with women and men having sex with men. And then he says, they receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. Whew. Um, all right, so <laughs> this phrase is um, frustratingly vague. And what has happened is, is because it is frustratingly vague, teachers have, um, through the years, felt free to insert their own opinions into what this means. That's what, exactly what happened in the 80s, right? AIDS is God's judgment on the gay community. What they did is they inserted their modern opinions into this ancient text, and that's really, really dangerous. So what can we derive from the context itself, right? What, what in the world could Paul mean from the context itself that they are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error? I think in context, the best way to explain this, the best way to understand this is simply to understand it as Paul is asserting that God is just in giving us over to our disordered desires, that God is just in whatever form it takes when he allows us to taste the penalty of our idolatry. God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. In whatever form it takes, God is just in allowing us to taste the giving over to our disordered desires. So let me pause for a minute and ask this. In the context, what I've, what I've explained is that homosexuality is being used by Paul as an example of disordered desires, right? That, that, um, that, 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 that this is one of many examples he could have chosen, but he chose homosexuality, right? The point of Romans 1 is not homosexuality. <laughs> that is not the central point of Romans chapter 1. The central point of Romans chapter 1 is that we have exchanged the glory of God for the image of man, and as a result, we have disordered desires, and as a result, God has given us over to the consequences of those desires. Why does he speak about homosexuality? Why did he choose this to talk about? I can only um, give you my best guess, because again, Paul doesn't explain why he chose it, but I think contextually we can draw some things out that I think can lead us to some, some tentative conclusions. Um, I think it's possible that he chose this because it's a clear example. 
example of how disordered desires are fruitless. Right? We know. It's, it's, it's a biological fact that gay sex cannot be fruitful in a biblical sense. Right? Romans chapter 1. Adam and Eve, God marries them and then says, be fruitful and multiply. So it is possible that Paul has in mind that gay sex itself, very simply as a disordered desire, cannot bring about the natural fruit that was intended from, um, from sexual union. It's also possible that Paul knew how his readers would respond to this example. Um, Jewish readers and, and Gentiles that were familiar with Judaism, proselytes, Gentiles who would become followers of Yahweh, or God-fearers, uh, Gentiles who, who non-Jewish people who, who had heard about the God of, of Israel and, and respected that God and followed maybe from a distance. They didn't become official proselytes, but, but they followed from a distance. That describes what we would expect to find in the Roman church. Even though the Roman church is a minority Jewish and a majority uh, Gentile or non-Jewish people, those non-Jewish people would, during the entire first century, have come through being God-fearers. That's how they first heard about the Messiah that was promised to Israel and came to believe in the gospel. And so Paul knew that his, his readers both the Jewish minority and the Greek majority who were coming from a background of Judaism would have looked on homosexuality as a particularly demeaning sin. On the chart of honor and shame, right? We know the Jewish religious leaders took great pride in in being at the top of that chart. They looked down on anybody who was not rigorously following the Old Testament law. And they didn't hide that, right? They didn't, they didn't have, like we have today, we have, we have uh, uh, at least a perceived uh, value of humility uh, from which we get our humble brags, right? We can't just be outright braggers. We've we got to be humble braggarts, right? Um, in Old Testament, in that culture, man, they didn't have a perceived value of humility. That wasn't a thing. And so religious leaders were open about their boasting, about their religious credentials and about where they stood on the honor-shame spectrum and how they were up here and other people are down here. And invariably in the Jewish mind, Judaism's up here, homosexuality, which is clearly condemned in the Old Testament. Homosexual behavior is down here. It is possible that Paul is using this example in order to get both his Jewish and his Greek readers sitting there going like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's sinful. Mm, yeah, God is right in, in giving them over to their disordered desires, right? You combine the use of this example with Paul's persistent use of they. He writes this entire chapter in the third person. They, 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 they. What impact does that have on you as a reader? When you read through this chapter and you read they, 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 by the time you get to the end of it, are you thinking of yourself at all? Do you, do you tend to see yourself in this picture at all? No. See, by using the third person, they, Paul is creating space for pride. He's not creating pride. He's just creating space for pride. Because what happens in our pride is when we read they, 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 we subtly start adopting an us-them paradigm where we are up here and they are down here. 
I think one of the central things Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1 is setting us up for Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 2, if you feel pridefully content, contemning people who struggle differently than you, man, you got a kick coming to your gut. And I hope you stick around for it because you need it. Because I need it too. Um, but it's coming, okay? So I think that, that this subtle use of they and, and the intentional use of homosexuality as an example is a, is a quiet way that Paul is creating space for pride to grow so that he could set us up for, for a godly punch of conviction in Romans 2 and 3. All right, so I want you to catch this, y'all. I want you to catch this. Paul isn't saying that homosexuality is a worse sin than any other sin. That homosexual behavior is, is some a greater sin than any other sin. He's not, he's not saying that. He's saying that it is an example of disordered desires. Paul is not saying that homosexual behavior is somehow ranked as more sinful, nor is he saying that the gay person is somehow more judged by God. He is not saying that. Nor is he saying, if you are same-sex attracted, that you are automatically in some other category of classification of judgment because you struggle with same-sex attraction. Scripture consistently describes homosexual behavior as contrary to God's design plan. Nor in Scripture does it condemn you for having same-sex attraction. The temptation... Is, is the allurement to the behavior. God does not condemn you for your attractions. And you are not somehow farther from God because you have them. We all have allurements. We all have disordered desires. Right? How silly would it be for me to look at somebody who cheats on their taxes every single year and say to them, God condemns you not only for your sinful behavior, but for your sinful desire of greed. Now, mortify the desire and repent of the behavior, right? The, the, the key is not to combine the temptation with an intentional act of the will in which we seek to fulfill it. So Paul is speaking here about um, all of humanity. God gave them over. Who's them? Us. God gave us over to our disordered desires. He is speaking about humanity collectively. This is just one specific way that it plays out. And in fact, this is super clear as we continue to move through the passage. Look at the way Paul moves quickly from talking about homosexuality to giving us what's called a vice list. A vice list is a, a technique that was used in ancient literature to, to just describe the general degradation of, of uh, humanity, right? So verse 28, we have a repetition of that key idea. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Who's them? Us, right? It's us. God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's the same critical idea. It's a third time he's repeated it. 24, 26, now 28, right? And then we get into verse 29 through 31, which is the vice list. And I want to change this a little bit. I'm going to read this again, and instead of saying they, I'm going to say we. And I just want you to see how it impacts us differently. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When we read it with we, it has a different impact. See, for the third time, Paul is driving home this point. He is subtly crafting a level playing field. You put yourself on the shame honor chart. And wherever you place yourself, you have people that you look down on, that somehow you feel superior to, that you think their sins are more despicable than yours. We all do it. And Paul is saying it is an even level playing field. He is showing us all our desperate need. You're going to be tempted to rank sin because we all are, right? I don't care if you're progressive or conservative. You may rank different sins in different places, but you're going to despise somebody. You're going to place yourself on this honor-shame chart, and somewhere on that chart, you are going to feel superior and perfectly justified in looking down on someone else because they sin in a way you don't. You may be tempted to say, well, this is bad, but that's really, really bad. Listen, Paul is saying that they all come from the same source. All of our sins are evidence of the same thing, right? What's interesting in this vice list is there's not even a clear order. It's like a tossed salad of sin, right? Not a tasty one. It is just like commentators like will we'll start out by saying there's no clear order, but, and then they try to give an order and everybody comes up with a different one because there is no order. It is like just a hodgepodge of, of the results of our disordered desires. And then Paul wraps up with an especially damning description in verse 32. In verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, what things? Not just the sins you despise, but the sins you commit. They know that God's decree is that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's interesting that that Paul's language at the end of this chapter, it's almost like Paul is saying, you want to know what the most shocking thing is about all of this? It's not just that we all sin. It's that we like to create clubs. And the people who sin like me get to be in the club, and we get to look down at people who sin like them. And we feel superior to them. The most shocking thing in this chapter isn't that people sin, it's that they hardly approve of people who sin like them. We create clubs where where we all like the same sin and we all despise the same sin. Think about it. When, when are you likely to not only sin, but applaud people who sin? When, are those, when is that most likely to happen? I guarantee you it's when your sin has become your pride. When you no longer see your sin as sin. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Yeah, yeah, it's questionable. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but it's not that. This is a perfect description for most of what I see on social media. Isn't it? 
I despise this person because they sin in that way. And that way is heinous. It's bad. It's the worst. And so I degrade them, I slander them, I mock them, I dehumanize them, I commit a lot of the sins that are in the vice list. And then I turn around and I like and I share other people's posts who despise the same people I despise. I not only sin, I heartily approve of those who sin in the same ways I do, who hate the same stuff I hate, who despise the same people I despise. And then Paul implies, this is the most shocking thing about our idolatry. It leads us to create such a twisted perspective on life that we take pride in our degradation. And we find others who degrade others in the same way we do. And we feel perfectly justified in doing it. So, to summarize the point of this chapter. We have all rejected God as God. That is the universal human condition. We are all idolaters by birth and by choice. From our first parents on, we have deep, deep desires that can only be satisfied in the presence of God, but because we're separated from God, we seek to have those desires met in things that aren't God. We turn to things that aren't God, things that are in the image of man, and we say to those God, those things, you will be to me the glory of God. You will meet my deep needs. You will satisfy my deep hungers. You will meet me in my deep longings. We have all rejected God as God. As it said in verse 1, we have tried to un-God God, to remove him from his throne and position of power, from his authority, and we have sought to take his place. We have all sought to un-God God, and as a result, we all have unrighteousness, unjust behavior that flows from our hearts. We lie about God and his nature. We lie about each other and each other's nature. We, we, we reject God and, and we diminish the image of God. I'm for me because I have to be like God. I must treat myself like God. I must fight for myself to stay first. And as a result, every form of wickedness, selfishness flows out of that. We're driven by these disordered desires, trying to feed appetites that were designed to drive us to God and things that aren't God. And so God, as an act of justice, a God who is presently revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, not completely, but partially, gives us over to those disordered desires. Now, how do I know it's partial? Because we're still here. Okay? If God gave us completely over, we wouldn't be here. Right? Not a chance. If, you were, if there were no restraining factors on our depravity, um, we're all capable of any sin. And if there were no restraining factors on that sin, we would all be as depraved as we are capable of being depraved. God gave us over just enough that it would awaken within us an awareness that we have a desperate need for a Savior. God gave us over 
to the consequences of our disordered desires that we might get a small taste of what life would be like were we to be completely and permanently separated from God, the source of life. He wanted to awaken within us our need for a Savior. Because here's the thing, we can't change our desires. There's no amount of religious behavior, there's no amount of self-control, there's no amount of self-improvement projects can ever reorder your disordered desires. Right? You can't do it. You can't through self-discipline and self-improvement pray the gay away. You can't through self-discipline and self-improvement make yourself stop being greedy or stop being lustful or, or, or stop being um, uh, a fearful um, and, and desperately craving security that only God can give. Right? You cannot reorder your disordered desires. God gave us over to awaken within us our deep need for grace. That we can't do it on ourselves. That we are hopelessly lost in this condition. We have a desperate need that can only be met by the grace of God. See, even God's act of judgment is an expression of grace. Even God giving us over is an act of grace by a just God who is inviting us to have our sin justly paid for by His Son, whom He gave over completely. He gave His Son over to judgment completely that we might be set free from our disordered desires and the consequences of our cosmic treason, that we might be forgiven and invited back to be redeemed and restored. God gives us a taste of the bad news to make us more and more hungry for the good news. The bad news is that we've rebelled against God and that, that He has wrath against our idolatry. The good news is that in love, He gave over His Son to the judgment we deserve so that we could receive the blessing we could never claim. And while God gives us over a little, Jesus was given over completely. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This chapter, Romans chapter 1, is part of a larger argument. Chapter 1 doesn't make any sense without chapter 2 and 3. And, and so we need to put it in its context to make sure that we're not just pulling these verses out and cherry-picking ideas from them. We need to see Paul's progressive argument because what he is doing is he's showing us that all of us, regardless of the nature of our disordered desires, deeply need a Savior who will step in and save us from the consequences of those desires. So join us next week as we continue to dig in and allow the Word to show us how great our need is and how much greater our Savior is. All right, let me close with some word of prayer. Father, I, uh, I thank you that um, you did not leave us in our rebellion, that you did not completely and irrevocably hand us over, give us over to the consequences of our disordered desires. Otherwise, we would plunge ourselves into the deepest darkness, cursing the darkness even as we despise the light. 
we would inflict in ourselves the deepest and most profound pains and blame you and everyone but ourselves for our suffering. I thank you, Lord, that you extend us grace, that you invite us back, that, Lord, we are on a level playing field, that all of us have disordered desires, all of us crave your presence in places your presence isn't. We, we look to things that aren't you to do for us what only you can do. And, and Lord, I thank you that while that provokes your wrath, in your love, you have also provided a Savior. Allow us, Lord, to see the beauty of this invitation. Allow us to hear the profound beauty of that love. I pray for my friends that are struggling with this. I pray for my friends that, that are really wrestling. Spirit, will you comfort their hearts? I pray for my friends that, that, that are struggling with same-sex attraction. I pray, Lord, that, that you would draw near to them and make incredibly clear your invitation to grace. I pray for each one of us that we would be awakened to the beauty of this incredibly good news. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.